Listen now to the Word of God. Uh, You'll find it on page 940 in your pew Bible if you're using that edition. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach, are you stealing? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. So reads the Word of God. Now let's look into this text together. Paul is continuing his meticulous defense of the fact that Jews, like Gentiles, stand guilty before God, stand under His judgment, on his way to affirming that both are justified by one and the same means, by by faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we are in this argument. That's what Paul is doing at this point. But just as we saw last week, There are good and helpful and meaningful implications for us in this study today. We're hearing a a deeply and richly biblical theological argument from Paul that really is anchored in to the needs that he was facing in his day, but it still has something to say to us. So Paul is continuing his meticulous defense of the fact that Jews, just like Gentiles, stand guilty before God on his way to affirming that both are justified by one and the same means, 
by faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. We hear that and we say amen, those of us who know Christ as Savior, and yet we can hear that and think, all right, then what is there for me in this? Folks, just as we heard last week, I think we'll hear something, a strong warning and reminder to us this morning as Paul is making this point that is very needful for us to hear, proving again that the Word of God in every statement it makes is relevant to the church in every generation. Here in this text, we hear instruction that is profoundly important toward establishing a, a, a properly biblical understanding of God's salvation plan under both the Old and the New Covenant, as well as a word of instruction of profound importance on the relationship between his Old and New Covenant people. Here is where we learn, for instance, beyond the shadow of any reasonable doubt that Jew and Gentile stand equal before God in their need for salvation, in their need for the finished work of Christ on the cross. And they are then, Jew and Gentile alike, saved by that one and the same means into one and the same body, as we'll see by the end of chapter 3. But that instruction, that particular rich biblical insight doesn't come until the last two verses of this text. So we want to walk through the text, hear what Paul is saying in order to appreciate the rich and layered instruction that comes in verses 28 and 29. And let's walk through this text in order then, in three steps. And you see those steps listed for you. There's a slight correction on verses. That's my own fault. That was a mistake in my notes that I caught a little bit too late to uh, correct. But uh, look at the, the outline that's in your bulletin. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. First, the inconsistency between the words and actions of the Jews. That's verses 17 through 24, right? 17 through 24. Then the implications of this inconsistency for their standing with God. It's verses 25 to 27. And then the striking conclusion to be drawn from these implications, which we've already introduced a bit, verses 28 and 29. So the first section just goes through 24. And the second section is 24 to 27. That'll correct the error that's in print there. So let's walk through this text, looking first at the inconsistency between the words and actions of the Jews. That's where Paul is in his argument, remember, just establishing the fact that Jews need to be saved in the same way Gentiles do. Jews are under the judgment of God in the same way Gentiles are, despite the fact that they have received the law of God and the sign of the covenant with him. So the first thing we want to do as we start into this section in verses 17 through 24 is make a quick clarification. And here I'm actually just going to read this from the pages of one of the commentaries because it's so helpful as a single statement to remember as we're talking about here in, in verse 17, you who call yourself a Jew, let's clarify what we're talking about. Let's clarify what we mean. Doug Moo writes, the name Jew, which originally referred to a person from the region occupied by the descendants of Judah, was applied to Israelite people generally after the exile. 
when the territory occupied by the Jews encompassed not much more than the original Judah. You remember, it's because the ten northern tribes had gone off into exile a couple centuries before, a little over a century before, and now the southern kingdom, just Judah and Benjamin, had gone, gone off into Babylon, and so they came back. They, they are filling a, a rather small footprint on what we know as present-day Israel. That's the point that Mu is making here. He said, by Paul's day, it had become common, a common designation of anyone who belonged to the people of Israel, this word Jew. And I say this because when we hear it, it can sound a little pejorative in our day to refer to the Jews. We don't talk about them in quite that category, but it wasn't that in the first century. By Paul's day, it had become common, a common designation of anyone who belonged to the people of Israel. It suggests that special status enjoyed by the people of Israel in distinction from all other nations. So it was the name that set them apart. To be named a Jew, then, conveys the status shared by anyone who belonged to the covenant people of God. It was a prominent name. So it was a claim to a particular identity, and that identity being a member of the covenant community of this God who saves by deliverance from the great powers of the world. In their day, Egypt. And then Babylon. They came back to the land, and this was a distinctive name of those who had gained victory, essentially, over the power of that day. So this section that we just read, or just are talking about now, verses 17 through 24, the section as a whole, with that understanding of who's being addressed in it, this section is easy enough to understand as it is written. It's just a, a pretty long, a whole lot longer than normal, if-then statement than we're used to reading. If-then statements usually are, are clarifying statements. They're brief, they're crisp, they're, they're sound bites. But this one, this one is long. It's got a lot of ifs. And then a fair number of thens that follow, right? So it's a long if-then statement that lists a number of things that the Jews would have perceived themselves to be. Things that they would have perceived to be true of them. That's verses 17 through 20. Followed by a list of questions that Paul raises intended to debunk that perception. 21 to 23. And then it closes with a quote from Old Testament Scripture, Isaiah 52, verse 5. It's also possible that it comes from the prophet Ezekiel, but prophet Isaiah is the one that appears to be the passage that's most in view here. So let's walk through the if of the if-then. Look at verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent... Because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness, just as the Jews were called to be, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, this is what you perceive to be true of yourself, verse 20, and if you perceive yourself to be an instructor of the foolish, wisdom literature, teacher of children, think Deuteronomy 6. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. If this is who you perceive yourself to be, 
exalting the law to the place of being the very words of God. Paul's about to ask, how's that, how's that working for you? If that's who you perceive yourself to be, how, how's it going? Are all these things really being achieved? Where you're living right now, are, are, are these qualities observable in you, through you? Are these affirmations really true? This is who you perceive yourself to be. Paul's answer? Not across the board, no. <laughs> no, this is not a description of the Jews, an accurate one in that day. At least not among the Jews who were more high, highly, uh, thought more highly of the law and of circumcision than they thought of covenant obedience. It surely is not the case. So Paul asked in the then, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you, do you rob temples? hard to know exactly what he means there, but probably any kind of illegitimate profit from the wealth of idols is in view here. Uh, sometimes precious metals were taken out of idols' temples and used for other purposes, or, or you know the argument of meat sacrificed to idols being in the marketplace and so forth. So probably any kind of illegitimate profit from the wealth of idols is considered here or comes in under the question about robbing temples. So he poses these questions, and then now the bottom line comes in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You boast in it, it's your identity, but you're not keeping it. And so you're dishonoring God by your behavior. Now that's like I said, pretty simple to understand, but this is a stunning list of sins that Paul gives here, and one that we need to pause and answer the question, how does that work? What is he actually saying? It's a bit confusing because most of the Jews, and surely all of them, with perhaps a rare exception, who were listening to this letter being read to the Roman church, most of the Jews, and probably all of them listening to him, would say, no, I've, I've not stolen. I've not committed adultery. <laughs> I have never robbed temples. So the question is, what does Paul mean here? What is he doing? What's his aim in raising these questions? Because it seems to us even over the centuries like these questions would not have been true of the people that were listening to his letter. And I would say it's not entirely easy to know what he does mean. Some commentators whose names we would recognize have given up on the pursuit of trying to figure out what he means here. But honestly, I think of working too hard. I think it actually ends up being rather simple and clear what he's doing here. But first, we'll consider some possibilities. Some suggest that this is just sort of a vague reference to the Ten Commandments. That, that the Ten Commandments are being held up, and you're not flawless according to the Ten Commandments, and so, so naturally you're guilty. 
But he selected three pretty specific questions to ask. And surely, if that were the case, if he were just attempting to show the lostness of their heart and their need for salvation by pointing to the Ten Commandments, there are better commandments that he could have pointed to. Ones that the people, the ones listening, could have much more easily said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. How about lying? How about coveting? How about dishonoring parents? There, there surely were easier ones to reference. That's not where he went. Others suggest that this is a reference to the Sermon on the Mount and the intensified standard that was exposed by Jesus as he was teaching on the law, what the original intent of the law meant. Now, you know that we've taught from this pulpit here that Jesus wasn't raising the standard when he was doing that. He was just revealing the standard. It's what the law always meant. But until Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the subtleties of the fact that he governed the heart and not just the behavior were, were missed. So that's a possibility. The problem is that, that the best commentators agree pretty much across the board that there's no indication of that in this text. There's no point of reference back to the Sermon on the Mount that would make that the reference point for understanding why Paul raised these particular questions. So Paul must be doing something different than that. And I think what Paul is doing here is different than that. I think he's just, he's, he's building, remember, the case of the gospel with this Roman church in order to make sure that they're both on the same page in their understanding. And he's still in that place where he's talking about the lostness of all humanity. Gentiles first, then Jews, both standing in need of this gospel that, that's coming. He's going to be talking about it, and we'll walk through this again in some detail. But I think that's what he's doing. He's, he's getting them to a place where they say, yeah, you're right. Jews need salvation just like Gentiles do. That's his argument. So what Paul is doing here is proving to the church, the church which is believing Jews and believing Gentiles together in one body, He's proving to the church that both Jews and Gentiles are under God's judgment even though it is through the Jews that he's established the standard of righteousness in the law and sent the promised Messiah to enable those who believe to be judged not guilty according to that standard. That's where the argument is going, and that's what he's proving here. So it's not the sins of those who are reading this letter that he's pointing out. It's the sins of unbelieving Jews, or even Jews who might affirm that they believe, but their trust is actually in their privileged status as the ones called by God to receive the law and to receive circumcision and to produce the Messiah. He's arguing about the Jews generally and talking to this church about it. So even though he's using a, a, a singular address when he says, you who do this, don't you do that? Those are singular. It sounds like he's talking to individuals' hearts, and indeed he is. He's addressing the question to individual Jews, but he's doing so, I believe, demonstrably, clearly for rhetorical effect toward establishing the undeniable conclusion that, now to quote a different commentator, the Jews weren't keeping the law that they possessed and taught. They weren't keeping it. 
It's not that all Jews commit these sins, but that these sins are representative of the contradiction between claim and conduct that pervades Judaism. That might sound hard to get a hold of, but a quick example. Think of posing a similar question to an American patriot. We could say to such a person, you boast about American freedom, but don't you sacrifice your infants? Don't you sanction immorality? Don't you incarcerate your citizens at a far greater and far greater numbers than any other country of the world? The answer wouldn't be, I've never done any of those things. That misses the point of the question. The question is, you're right. Those things are undeniably true in our country. It's part of the picture. Unless you think I'm taking a pot shot at American patriotism, not at all. That's part of understanding how this whole great American experiment works. It's not by denying the evil that is also present in such a free society. It's, recognized, it's part of recognizing how it all works together. What do we do with that? That's the kind of argument Paul is making here. So, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself why you preach against stealing? Do you not steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols? Do you rob temples? The answer is, yeah, yeah, we do. In the same way. This is happening in Israel. In Israel that is supposed to be indicative of the people of God who are walking according to the covenant. Yeah, this is happening. So that's the point Paul is making, and I believe this point is underscored as we move into the Old Testament quote in Isaiah 50, from Isaiah 52, and it's there in verse 24. Verse 24 says, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of your testimony, Israel. In Isaiah 52 God's promised deliverance of his people stands center stage. That's the main point in Isaiah 52. However, God's people were still in exile in Isaiah 52. Their own sin was the reason why they were in exile. And because of that disgrace... The nations were blaspheming God's name. So at the very time that he's talking to them about their coming deliverance and about their renewed faithfulness, they are actually in exile and they're in a place where because of their sin, the name of God is being blasphemed among the nations. This nation that has a great God, well, they're in exile in some other country. How great is that God? That's how it works. Was every single person in exile guilty of all of the sins that sent them into exile? No, no, they weren't. But if anyone who were in exile were asked these questions saying, isn't this true of you? They would clearly have said yes because they wouldn't have missed the point of the question. I think that's what's happening here. That's what we're seeing here. So Paul reaches the culmination of his argument here as he charges the Jews with being guilty of essentially the same sin as the Gentiles in chapter 1. 
And here I'm quoting Tom Schreiner again. What he says here is an alternate way of saying the same thing that he said there, that they have failed to glorify God and give thanks to him. That's Israel's sin in chapter 2. He draws that connection. The very charge that was laid at the feet of the Gentiles back in 121 is laid on the Jews here. They failed to give glory to God and to give him thanks. They weren't living out the faith that they professed set them apart from the nations. It was an empty claim. So Israel now here in Paul's day is back in much the same place as they were in Isaiah 52. Now they're just under Rome's thumb. They're not under Babylon's any longer. The consequences then of the inconsistency between their words and their actions are made evident before the watching world. And again, the nations are blaspheming in the same way they would have while Israel was in Babylon. But even so, just as in that text, God's promised salvation is moving into view, which is exactly what we're going to see as we move through chapter 3. His salvation of these unfaithful people is coming. And just to look ahead for a moment in the book of Romans, we we, we can see salvation coming to all who believe in chapter 3, but we see this unique promise For these people come chapter 11, where God is going to pour out his spirit and call them into saving faith, and their blindness will finally be lifted to the point where they recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But now we're getting way ahead of ourselves, so we're going to come back into chapter 2 and finish the thought here. That's how this section finishes. Israel is back under the thumb of an oppressor. And the world is blaspheming, but even so, God's salvation is standing at the door. That is the implications of the inconsistency between their words and their actions. However, the implications of their inconsistency are clarified now in this next section. The implications of this inconsistency between Jewish words and actions with regard to their standing before God. And that's its own section in this argument, verses 25 to 27. And you can see it in 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. We could even add that, not not adding to the scriptures, but actually clarifying Paul's point, for circumcision indeed is of value only if you obey the law. But if you break the law... Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It always strikes me in talking about this subject that we're, we're, we're in an indelicate category. We can preach about circumcision being the sign of old covenant belief, but it is a gruesome thing to stop and pause again and say, what does circumcision mean and why is it the sign of the old covenant? Parents, you can rest easy. I'm not going to go into that this morning. I'd be glad to talk further about it. I'd be glad to preach on the subject. I'm just not going to go into it this morning. But lest we get confused by this, if somebody's new to to the Scriptures and saying, is circumcision what I think it is? Because we're talking about this awfully easily, and there's nothing easy about that subject. That is true. And it is what we think. And there are reasons. Beautiful deeply meaningful and theologically 
anchored reasons why that is the sign of Old Covenant belief. So we'll preach on that at some point, but right now it's simply standing here as a point of reference. Implications of their inconsistency are clarified in the language of verse 25. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So it's not just neutralized by disobedience. It turns negative. It's reversed by disobedience. What you claim to be true isn't just mollified, nullified, or, 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 or neutralized by lacking belief. It's reversed. Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision, not unlike the Jews' judging of the Gentiles back in verse 1 of this same chapter, revealed undeniably their knowledge of the law because they're appealing to the law to judge the nations. Just as that is true, even so, their circumcision here stands in condemnation of them if they don't obey the law. They're claiming this special status and even the sign of believing it but then they're not living the life. So the one thing they can't do at this point in defense of not living the life is claim ignorance of the standard. They can't because they've got the sign of the covenant and are bragging about it. But there's even more here. And this is where we start moving toward this mind-blowing Realization about God's plan of salvation, Old and New Covenant together. The converse here is again true for the Gentiles, just as we've seen before. Look at verse 26. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Very interesting. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That, that's a great turnaround there. That's an amazing question. If someone claims to be a Jew, and that's who was addressed as this chapter opened, Someone who claims to be a Jew and even has the signs but doesn't live like it is as good as not being one at all. Then is one who actually does live like it considered to be one? Paul's answer is, yeah. That's how it works. Yes. As we said last week in verses 12 to 16, we have to remember something at this point. We're not yet at the stage in Paul's argument where he's addressing how people are saved. That will come in the next chapter. Here, he's still talking about why they need to be saved. What problem they have that needs to be resolved. So, we should not hear him saying here that if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, he will be saved by that means. That's not his point. We should hear Paul saying that this man will enjoy God's favor in a way that the uncircumcised or that the circumcised Jew who breaks the law will not enjoy God's favor. 
he will gain the favor that was meant for the one who was living according to the standard and bearing the signs. We should hear Paul saying that this man will enjoy God's favor, that's borrowing the language from verse 29, in a way that the circumcised Jew who breaks the law will not. Look at verse 27. Thus, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. There's the implications of their inconsistency for their standing with God. The Jews can be displaced by faithful Gentiles in this way. That's Paul's point in verses 25 to 27. Why, we might ask? The answer to this question is at once stunning theologically formative and biblically clarifying. Why is this true? Here is the striking conclusion to be drawn from the implications of the inconsistency between Israel's words and actions. This is the striking conclusion to be drawn from that. Between Israel's claim to be God's people and their actions which argue just the opposite. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, meaning the praise of a true Jew, is not from man, but from God. Now remember, the name Jew suggests that special status enjoyed by the people of Israel in distinction from all other peoples, it conveys the status shared by anyone who belonged to the covenant people. And what Paul is saying here is that this status with God, this favor, is not achieved by physical descent. It's not achieved by Jewish ethnicity. Or even by the physical sign of the old covenant which was supposed to indicate a heart that was sensitive to God. Rather, this favor is reserved for those who actually display that sensitive heart. Regardless of whether they have the physical sign of Old Testament belief. That's the summary of what Paul is saying here in verses 28 and 29. This special status with God, this favor, is not achieved by physical descent, by Jewish ethnicity, or even by the physical sign of the Old Covenant, which is supposed to indicate a heart that is sensitive to God. Rather, this favor is reserved for those who actually display that sensitive heart, regardless 
of whether they have the physical sign. What we conclude from this is circumcision of the heart was always the aim of the physical sign. Always. Such that the physical sign only means something to those whose heart is aligned with God and it means nothing other than conviction and condemnation to those who bear it and yet don't live according to God's revealed standard. We can see this in the Old Testament. Remember the words from Deuteronomy 10 preached on this. Boy, it was just before COVID. <laughs> wow, that was a long time ago. We were preaching through Deuteronomy. One of these days, we're going to pick up in chapter 22 where we left off and finish that book. One of these days, God willing. But remember Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 14? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Moses preaching to Israel. Verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, the foreigner in the land, giving him food and clothing. That one who wants to come in among Israel because he sees and appreciates and worships Israel's God is welcome in the covenant people. God promised blessing if they would honor his covenant, not just receive the sign. Remember Deuteronomy 30. We haven't even gotten to this one yet, but it's a passage we referred to in preaching Deuteronomy 10. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Promise faithfulness of God to His people who are walking according to His covenant, right on the heels of having heard the blessings and cursings of walking in obedience and disobedience, respectively. He even sent them warnings through the prophets, Jeremiah 4 circumcise yourselves to the Lord, Jeremiah wrote. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Promised judgment on Israel for the absence of a circumcised heart. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So what Paul is saying here shouldn't have come as any surprise to them there in Rome as they were reading his letter. And it shouldn't come as any surprise to us today. Relationship with God is and always has been 
a matter of the heart. Living by faith in obedience to his word. This theme regarding who is truly a Jew, what that means, how it works, will continue developing through this letter. It's just a couple chapters down that it really gets locked in to help us understand using Abraham as an example and seeing how it is that Abraham is the father of those who have faith, not the father of an ethnic group. Ethnicity-wise, Abraham had two sons. It's not about bloodlines. It's about the line of promise, the line of faith. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness before the sign of circumcision was given. That's where chapter 4 is going. But we see the setup here in chapter 2 by the affirmation of this question. This same theme regarding who is truly a Jew and what it means and how it works will continue developing throughout this letter. But make no mistake, at this stage, that a Gentile who honors God in his heart enjoys God's favor ahead of a circumcised ethnic Jew who does not. That's the statement of chapter 2, and that has to be anchored in our minds before chapters 3 and 4 and 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 make any sense to us. There's no amount of knowledge or perceived spiritual privilege or affirmation of truth that can displace the need of obedience that reveals genuine faith being present in the life of believers. For us today, this has to be a reminder, what we're seeing here, reminder and a warning, just as we said at the beginning. There is nothing that receives God's favor except a heart that is soft toward Him, that presents itself in repentant trust, anchoring into the language and imagery of verses 4 and 5, right here in chapter 2, that presents itself in repentant trust and the obedience of faith. Tying into that phrase that anchors both chapters 1 and chapter 16 of this letter. There is nothing that receives God's favor except a heart that is soft toward Him that presents itself in repentant trust and the obedience of faith. There is no amount of knowledge or perceived spiritual privilege or affirmation of truth that can displace the need for repentant faith that shows itself through obedience. That is genuine saving faith. And Paul is just going step by step to build first the need for that and then the affirmation of how it happens. It is by this means and this means alone that both Jew and Gentile escape the judgment of God my friends, our bottom line this morning, it is by this means and this means alone, repentant faith that shows itself as obedience. It is by this means and this means alone that both you and I still today escape the judgment of God. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of truth, this careful argument that Paul is building here with this church whom he's never met. We thank you for the fact that he has never met them because we perceive that that has pressed him toward a meticulous clarity that we don't always pick up from Paul in his arguments when he's talking to people he does know. No fault in Paul's, just context means a lot. But as we hear these words from Paul this morning, Father, I pray that our thoughts, the thoughts of our heart and the thoughts of our mind might be formed according to the Word of God such that we are brought to the conviction of the very same thing Paul wanted these believers in Rome to understand with an undeniable and unswerving clarity that our faith is a matter of the heart and not conformity to an outward standard. Oh, our behavior will conform to an outward standard, but it will conform to that standard because our hearts have been changed to long for and desire that standard as the manifestation of your holiness and your righteousness and as our opportunity to participate in both your holiness and your righteousness. So, Father, I pray two things this morning. I pray first that we would hear that word of biblical, theological, clarifying instruction and recognize that trusting Christ as Savior is our only hope to escape your judgment. And then I pray that that, having fallen on our hearts, would move us toward saving belief if that has not yet happened in us and toward faithful obedience the part of each one who has motivated by love and a renewed sense of gratitude and thanksgiving and awe and worship at the amazing salvation that you have provided through the Jews to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.